Hello and welcome to the Beyond Biotech podcast and this is number 29 in case you were wondering. I'm Jim Cornell from the Biotech and it's great to be back into a routine again and communicating with lots of people whether it's my colleagues or people I'm chatting with for the podcast. It's all a little bit rushed this week because I'm out of the office which lately has become the acronym OOO although it is a work-related trip. So I'm trying to get the podcast done a little bit early this week, so hopefully nothing major happens to make the information obsolete. It also means it's only a two-person podcast, or two-guest podcast, I guess, this week. We have conversations with Victoria Vasilenko, KnowledgeGate co-founder and CEO, and Dr. Avery Ince, Vice President of Medical Affairs, Cardiovascular and Metabolism at Janssen Scientific Affairs. So now it's time for the news you may have missed over at lebiotech.eu. As I'm doing this early, it's a little bit shorter than usual, but still plenty to talk about. There is a new biomarker for the early prediction of the response to CAR-T cell therapy. Stalicla has signed an agreement with Novartis on neurodevelopmental disorders, and Alentis reported positive results from its fibrosis study. AirVaccine raised 4.5 million euros to start a therapeutic cancer vaccine trial. BC Platforms is going to collaborate on a Singapore population health study, and Exavir Bio secured funding for a COVID program. Rani Therapeutics, who we featured on the podcast recently, has provided an update on its pipeline. Selector and Astellas signed an agreement on an LOPD treatment, and we had our monthly look at the biggest private biotech investments in December 2022. Drug repurposing is emerging as a viable option for rare disease treatment. A new nanotransporter delivers drugs inside cells, And if you need lots of in-depth reading material at the weekend, we had a special newsletter with 10 articles on predictions for 2023 with plenty of experts from around the world and from all corners of the industry. So you can read all of these and a whole lot more at labiotech.eu. And so to the interviews. First, we talk to KnowledgeGate Group which provides a key opinion leader online platform. It's based in Copenhagen, Denmark, and I was fortunate enough to visit the company when I went to the Medicon Valley Alliance annual summit last year. I didn't do an interview then, but we did do an interview last week. Maybe one of the reasons that we didn't do an interview is because the office is on the top floor of a building, so you have to be pretty fit to get to the top, and maybe I'm not anymore. Anyway, we talked to the company's CEO and co-founder, Victoria Vasilenko. So KnowledgeGate Group is a company based uh, in Copenhagen. We're a technology company um, that operates within the life science space. Specifically, what we are doing and what we've developed, it's an AI that just goes through an incredible amount of data. So it's unstructured data at best. The data points include academic articles, clinical trial information, a lot of government reports, company reports, and social media. And utilizing these data points, we're able to automatically identify key opinion leaders and topics, so KOLs. And so this can be, for example, scientists who work in a specific area or surgeons, so doctors, researchers, some academics, as well as more and more on the commercial side as well. So that we call that our raw data, that identification happens within milliseconds. Um, post-identification, what we do is we automatically reach out to them and we invite them to be a part of our platform. 
They set an hourly rate to find worth their time. They agree to uh, NDA, T's and C's, do a bit of compliance training, at which point their profile is then active on our platform. Companies then get access to our platform and able to communicate with these experts and collaborate directly with them. So essentially it's taking point A, which is needing knowledge on the topic, connecting with point B, some of the world's experts on that topic, just completely seamlessly, well, um, quickly, seamlessly, while also remaining um, fully, fully compliant throughout the matter, which is incredibly important as well. On the expert side of things, we've actually are in the process of completely opening up the platform for them as well. So which means that they're able to collaborate with their peers that focus on the same thing that they do um, around the world. So um, yeah, in the future, we want to move on to open innovation projects. And we're starting off with the point between companies and um, experts. What kind of companies would utilize this service? So right now, our clients are pharma companies, biopharma companies, medtech companies, and then the surrounding ecosystem within that. So working more and more with consultancies, we managed to bring on two of the big four, which is very exciting for a brand new startup on our side. So we realized we kind of really hit on something that's needed here. Some VCs have started to use this during their due diligence process. We're creating partnerships on universities um, as well. And we're currently going through compliance with our first two hospitals. So hopefully we'll be able to add hospitals in that space as well. But it's a pretty long compliance process on that side. So life science is a very broad term, but it's pretty much the best term that we can use for this because, yeah, the use cases are pretty dramatic. Pharma and biopharma uses for advisory boards. Market research organizations uses for interviews, surveys, or the, the use cases are pretty broad there. And in terms of the the model that you've developed, um, how is that beneficial to the companies in terms of doing it themselves? Is it speed or? Yeah, so it's speed and coming into speed is price as well. So especially within biopharma, pharma, sometimes this process can take months and months or even we've heard stories of it happening up to a year. We've taken that process down to milliseconds to seconds. And then it's just a matter of finding schedules that align. Our record right now is 48 minutes from meeting to speak to an expert to being on a video call with that expert. 48 minutes is pretty impressive when sometimes it can take six to eight months. And then because of that as well, there's really no middlemen to work. We're a tech company. We're not people who sit between the two players. Um, They're able to connect directly through the platform as well. The experts, they get fairly compensated. The companies, they get the knowledge very, very quickly, seamlessly quickly means they get to save a significant amount of money as well. In the long term, it also just accelerates research time, which is our goal. And you mentioned at the beginning yeah. how you kind of, how you locate the experts and then get mm-hmm. get them onto the platform. Is that an easy discussion to have with them to convince them to come onto the platform or are they cautious? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That has been one of the most rewarding parts about this project that we have as well. We identify experts based on the work that they do. And we reach out to them saying, we identified you because of the work you did here, here, here. Thereby, we identified you as an expert in this topic. Most of them already do some sort of work within the industry. So for example, they sit on an advisory board with XYZ company, they get approached by startups or other pharma companies all the time. But in order for them to be able to work with them, they have to go through the contracting and compliance process every single time, every single individual company. They're very busy people and that gets very annoying. So they might want to work with different exciting projects, but they don't want to do the contracting process for a few months time again. With us, they do it once and then they can take as many interesting projects as they may or may not want to. 
Um, but I think the most exciting part is what we're building now. So it's the opening up of the platform on the expert side. We're doing completely in co-creation with them. So we're learning more and more about how important it is for them to be able to connect with their peers, to have the same focus that they do. Um, you know, it can be to co-author papers, to get feedback on any research that they're doing. So on that side, it's been incredible because we're building quite a community of them um, that can help us figure out which problems to be solving with the technology that we've built. And you said that you were kind of expanding that into other areas. What kind of areas will, will you be moving into? Yeah, so we have some pretty cool ideas with them about how we can move into some open innovation projects within the platform as well, allowing them to collaborate on different projects within the platform. That's kind of longer on in the product life cycle. We're a pretty new company. We've only been around for about a year. Or so we're so at this point we realized we hit on something. We're just trying to keep this plane together while we're flying it <laughs> very quickly. Um, but we have some really cool ideas for open innovation in the future that we'd like to build on. So what's the current plan? Where are you at right now in, in terms of new developments? Great question. So right now we're getting pretty close to closing our seed round. Um, we hopefully will be able to announce that pretty soon. With that, we're bringing on a really exciting partner that will kind of bring us on to a whole different level. So in the next two months, I think everything there is going to, we're going to cross our T's and dot our I's and that's going to be closed. Um, and then we're moving into expansion. A lot of that also has to do with the hospitals that I mentioned we're going through compliance with um, different hospitals, whether they're research hospitals or, for example, hospitals in different regions in the Middle East we're starting to work with, um, where they have a significant amount of resources, but maybe not the world's best surgeons that they need for X amount of time. So that way they can use our technology to identify them and work with them. And so I mean, regardless of where you are in the world, you should be yeah, getting access to best healthcare that's available. So that's our next hurdle to cross there. And you, you mentioned um, in a couple of months you'll be making that announcement. What, what about for the rest of 2023? Do you have any uh, any plans for the rest of the year? Yes. So first we close this round. <laughs> and yeah. then um, once we close this round, in about the end of Q1 is when the expert side will be completely launched, which means that the experts will be able to completely co collaborate with each other within the platform. Um, we're really, really excited for that side um, of things to go. Following the launch of the expert side, we're moving on to the hospital side of things. So it's yeah, just creating this borderless exchange while also remaining completely compliant is uh, something that's very, very important and essentially the core of everything. And so that's, that's how we're building things out there. Next is to the results of a study from eight years of data from a study of rivaroxaban, which is for the treatment of cancer-associated thromboembolism. To tell us about the results and what they mean is Avery Ince, Vice President of Medical Affairs, Cardiovascular and Metabolism at, at Janssen Scientific Affairs. I can say um, a bit about this study for which data was recently reported at the American Heart Association just a couple of months ago. As you know, the Janssen-Bayer product, Rivaroxaban, it's uh, indicated for use across a number of cardiovascular diseases um, and also some that move into that cancer realm. But there had not been a focused, dedicated study of the impact of either of the DOACs, A, in the real-world space 
with respect to their impact on treatment or on prevention of DVTs and pulmonary emboli in patients who actually have some sort of cancer. So that's not something that had been done previously. And this Oscar study, which was presented at AHA a couple months ago, was basically the first study that wound up evaluating both of the major uh, DOACs, both uh, rivaroxaban and apixaban, in terms of their effectiveness and also the safety for the treatment of cancer-associated DVTs or, or PEs. So that was the focus of the investigation. And the result, essentially, was that rivaroxaban and apixaban are quite effective and well-tolerated as well in the treatment of cancer-associated VTE. But you know VTE is the contraction of DVT and PE, so venous thromboembolic disease. So what's the problem that you're trying to solve, and what are the current techniques being used, and what's the solution, I guess? Classically, there is an increased um, prevalence, a dramatically increased prevalence of DVTs and PEs in cancer patients of all sorts, number one. So that's historic. And then number two, you know, either the attempt to prevent these kinds of thromboembolic events or the attempt to treat them has historically been done with agents like warfarin on the one hand, or also with um, heparin and sort of the low molecular weight heparin products, broadly speaking. But there are drawbacks associated with those approaches. And one that that shows up not infrequently, um, although there are others, but one is that um, heparin um, mainly needs to be injected by people, particular when they're in the outpatient environment. And um, your typical patient is really not keen on self-injecting in order to achieve anticoagulation. So self-injecting with heparin or low, mole- low molecular weight heparin products winds up being difficult for some patients to do. And what that means is that actual adherence, uh, many would say compliance, but adherence with the anticoag regimen is uh, suboptimal. And when you have a suboptimal adherence with an anticoagulation regimen, then what you have is cancer patients of various stripes then winding up with this sort of uh, increased propensity for venous thromboembolic disease secondary to their cancer, basically because they're not actually anticoagulating to the extent to which they need to. So that's sort of the, the problem. Then the solution would be these DOACs we've been describing, which basically are oral medications and therefore easy to take. And uh, unlike warfarin, where once again, you need to take the tablet and then you need to basically make sure that the blood levels are appropriate, essentially by doing INR testing to make sure that the thickness or thinness of your blood is right at the at the right level. So there's a fair amount of uh, commotion associated with uh, the taking of uh, you know Coumadin, warfarin, etc. So all of this you get to step away from with the with the DOAC such as rivaroxaban where you basically take the pill orally, you achieve the necessary level of anticoagulation. There is no disincentive to avoid doses because of the discomfort associated with self-injection or the like. 
and then you then actually achieve that reduction in PEs or DVTs that can so often be associated with with having cancer. So that's sort of a description, uh, both of the problem that you're trying to solve and then also of the solution. So how would this prove to be an improvement on those existing methods? Yeah, well, I would say that the biggest single difference between, for example, the uh, low molecular weight heparins and uh, a treatment like rivaroxaban is that rivaroxaban is oral whereas the low molecular weight heparins can be administered via self-injection in the outpatient environment or uh, intravenously in the inpatient environment. So that's a major advance right there. The decreased adherence associated with self-administration, self-injection of a low molecular weight heparin, you bypass that problem altogether when you go to an orally administered an anticoagulant such as rivaroxaban. And so you have not just an avoidance of the discomfort, but importantly, you actually have much more of a, a tendency towards adhering to the medication regimen and therefore achieving the right levels of anticoagulation and therefore achieving avoidance of the DVTs or the PEs and what have you. And what we saw in this study was not a direct testing of that particular hypothesis that I outlined to you. We didn't have a rivaroxaban, for example, versus low molecular weight heparins. That's not what this study was about. It's now been accepted, I think, by, um, I'm tended to say, the vast, vast majority of hematologists and oncologists that there is a patient preference for oral medications over self-administration. So that's well understood. The question here was of uh, the two most commonly used oral agents, one of them being rivaroxaban and the other being apixaban, how safe are they? How effective or efficacious are they? That was what was really looked at in this retrospective observational sort of database study. And what was found was they're both quite effective and they're both quite safe. Rivaroxaban had only a numerical advantage over apixaban in terms of efficacy. From a statistical perspective, they were even, Stephen, they were not different from each other. And uh, But zooming out, you would say that uh, rivaroxaban and apixaban were both safe and effective in the treatment of uh, patients with cancer who have already had some sort of VTE, some a DVT or a PE, and who are at risk for some sort of recurrent event. And in terms of that administration, how often does it have to be taken? Yeah, rivaroxaban is taken once daily. And uh, this is, you know, ordinarily. So, you know, per the label, as you know, hematologists and oncologists, uh, when faced with a particular patient in front of him or her, uh, will make adjustments to suit based on the particular clinical context. But per the label, rivaroxaban is administered orally and once daily a dose like uh, 10 milligrams once a day or 15 or 20 milligrams once a day, this would be a, a typical dosing scenario for a patient who needs rivaroxaban. What would happen in this particular instance if we were trying to sort of develop the picture? What was studied in this particular study, Oscar, is, um, you know, you'd have a patient who was an adult, somebody who was 18 years and over, 
And this person also has a cancer, perhaps breast cancer, was the case, as was the case for of the order of 23-24% or so of patients, perhaps some sort of prostate cancer, as was the case for about 15 or so percent of patients. But in any case, there is a cancer present and the patient has also already had um, undergone, had some sort of VTE, some sort of venous thrombotic event, either a DVT or a PE. So that's the setup. And, you know, there were in this particular study of the order of 2,500 such people who were treated once daily with an agent like rivaroxaban, not quite as convenient in the case of apixaban, the other oral, where the treatment typically would be a twice daily administration. But for rivaroxaban, once daily, sometime between January of 2013 and I believe it was December of 2020. So this was the period of time in which patients under the care of their physicians, cancer patients under the care of their physicians were given one or the other of these oral agents, in the case of rivaroxaban, once a day. And then the question that was asked was, did this intervention with Riva once daily or with apixaban twice daily, did this intervention wind up preventing the further recurrence of another DVT or of another PE? Yes or no? And then to what extent was the administration of this agent safe? So that's what the study looked at. But again, coming back to your question, in this study, we had administration on a daily basis if the drug was rivaroxaban or twice daily if the drug was apixaban. So is it possible to say that this is saving lives or would it be too much to come to that conclusion? I will say this, the the study that was done was basically designed to look not at mortality, either from the underlying cancer or mortality from, you know, a VTE event. And frankly, it would be hard to tease those things, number one. And number two, the numbers uh, involved there would be so small that it would be very difficult to study that effectively. I can say that um, in Oscar, that the primary outcome was a, it was a composite. It was a composite of A, recurrent VTE, right? A recurrent venothrombolic event, either DVT or PE, that's category A. The other part of the composite, B, was basically any kind of bleeding event that led to hospitalization. So these are basically sort of the two things that you want to avoid. You don't you don't want another VTE and you don't want a bleeding event that's sufficiently serious that you had to be hospitalized in order to deal with it. And so this was the composite primary that was uh, studied. And basically what was found was that of the order, let me give you the right numbers here. Yep. So for rivaroxaban, Three months after treatment initiation, 5.3% of patients with cancer who had had an index uh, VTE event, three months after initiation of um, rivaroxaban, 5.3% of them had had either a recurrent VTE or a bleeding event that warranted hospitalization. So that's, uh, which is to say that almost 95% did not have such an outcome. For apixaban, it was uh, of the order of 6.0% 
of the patients who did in fact have either a recurrent VTE or that bleeding event that required a hospitalization. So, and I I just want to point out here, Jim, that although there was a numerically higher number of those quote-unquote bad outcomes with the Pixaban, it was only a numerical difference. When you do the statistics, it turns out that there was not a statistically meaningful difference between what was seen with rivaroxaban and what was seen with apixaban. They were quite comparable. So if you zoom out, what you say is, oh, this recurrent uh, VTE or this bleeding event that required hospitalization, that's something you want to avoid. Only 5% of patients, roughly, had that at three months. And for rivaroxaban at six months, that went up to 7.5%. This is a, a small, small minority of all treated patients who are having one of the negative outcomes of recurrent VTE or of bleeding requiring hospitalization. Flipped to look at the converse, you would say that almost 95% and greater than 92% at three and six months were able to avoid the outcomes that you were trying to avoid. So that's what was uh, looked at in this study. Are you planning to do more studies on this? We are. We are planning a handful of studies. We think that rivaroxaban provides a tremendous benefit to cardiovascular patients who have AFib or atrial fibrillation or who are at risk for atrial fibrillation. It provides a lot of benefit to um, patients who have a DVT or a PE or who are at risk for forming these things and some other patient groups as well. We do have plans to continue generating some data in this space, despite the fact that rivaroxaban has now been a sort of pride and proven and tested drug in the the marketplace for, in the clinical practice marketplace for of the order of 11 years. Are there any other things that you're working on that you'd like to talk about? Sure, Jim. No, thanks for the opportunity. I will, I'll mention this uh, without going into great, great detail, but I will say that Janssen's and uh, J&J's commitment to addressing unmet medical need in the cardiovascular disease area remains uh, really solid. And while it is true that rivaroxaban has met the needs of millions of patients uh, over the years, J&J takes the view that there's more important work to be done, that there's a continued unmet need that's out there. And uh, as a consequence of this, we are currently involved in the development of a factor 11 inhibitor. That's another class that can be deployed to this space that we're talking about, prevention or treatment of clots um, in patients who have uh, AFib or who are at risk of AFib or uh, VTE. So we're developing a drug called Milvexian which has completed phase two of its clinical development and which is about to enter into phase three trials, we believe. And uh, so that constitutes sort of the next Janssen effort to continue meeting unmet medical need of, uh, of these sorts of patients. Plenty to keep you busy then. Janssen, as you know, operates across a large number of therapeutic areas. So the cardiovascular and metabolic area is one, but we're active in the oncology space, in the immunology space, pulmonary hypertension, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so, as you say, there's, there's, always, there's always something coming. Okay, that's great. Anything else to add? I'm pleased that we had a chance to, to talk about this particular 
study because um, one of the things that we've been keen to do is to take on diseases that really, for want of a better word, sort of plague uh, populations worldwide. Certainly the best example of this would be cardiovascular disease, the number one killer globally. But then, of course, cancer. In many instances, the number two killer in many geographies. And so we're thrilled that with Oscar, we've been able to put together really solid research that addresses an unmet need that's actually right at that intersection between the number one killer, cardiovascular disease, and the number two killer in many geographies, cancer. We're thrilled that certainly there are large numbers of people who are at that intersection, and we're really thrilled that we've been able to make a, an important contribution in that area. So I, I'm, I'm happy to end on that note of, you know, having demonstrated that rivaroxaban, uh, you know, is really uh, safe and effective at the intersection of those two areas. And we're thrilled to continue addressing unmet medical need via pursuit of Milvexian and other compounds as well. And that's it for another podcast. Next week looks like being a busy one with meetings, podcast interviews and videos to edit, so I'd better get moving and back to work. Although I guess the podcast is officially work, but I do enjoy it. So thanks a lot for joining us. I hope wherever in the world you are, you have a great week ahead. Take care and you'll join us next time for another Beyond Biotech. Beyond Biotech.